Well, this morning I want to take a look at one of the most tragic passages in the entire Bible. I mean, if you read this passage in its entirety, it leaves you scratching your head. I mean, it's the story of a man who approaches Jesus out of need. Uh, He's got a lot of things going for him. I mean, if you were to meet him on the street, you would have been thoroughly impressed. In fact, Matthew tells us that this man was young, probably in his mid-twenties. He had his whole life before him. I mean, Mark tells us that he was wealthy, in fact, extremely wealthy. Luke tells us he was influential. He was a leader in the synagogue. All three gospel writers tell us that he was moral, but down deep inside, this man was empty. He lacked what only Jesus could give, so he goes to the right person, and he ends up asking the right question, and he ends up getting the right answer. But tragically, this man does the wrong thing. And I want to introduce him to you in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. I want you to notice how Mark describes this situation. He says, now he was going out on the road. One came running, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, Mark tells us that this young man approaches Jesus, but a careful examination of the text indicates he actually ran to Jesus. But not only that, he knelt down before Jesus. And Mark tells us that he asked Jesus a question. The tense of the verbs in his question indicate he asked it over and over and over again. Good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life, is what he asked. You see, even though this man had it all, he had youth, wealth, he had influence, he knew something was wrong, something was missing. Uh, There was a yearning in his life that all of his possessions could not fill. I mean, his question was really an admission, wasn't it? This man didn't know the answer to one of life's most significant questions. How can I go to heaven? Now, that sounds like a pretty important question. And on the surface, it looks extremely important. I mean, it indicates a perception of need in the man's life. But Jesus understands there's a deeper issue that needs to be addressed, that there's a problem. Notice what he, how he responds in verse 18. He says, and so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. I mean, why didn't Jesus just answer this man's question? I mean, he came with enthusiasm. He was... Uh, He he was filled with optimism, overflowing with interest. But instead of answering uh, the man's question, Jesus ends up posing a question for this man. Why? Well, he wants to know if this man knows to whom he's speaking. You know, today in modern society, we have a way of just throwing around adjectives without thinking. I mean, something is great, it's awesome, it's wonderful. I mean, we just use adjectives right and left. But did you know 
the Bible is very careful in its use of adjectives. And Jesus picks up on one descriptive word in the man's question, the word good. Now, it's important that we see what Jesus sees here. I mean, Jesus is detecting a problem with goodness. Now, the New Testament was written in ancient Greek. And in the Greek language, there are two words you can use for the word good. The first is uh, agathos which refers to inherent or intrinsic goodness. The second is kalos, which has to do with extrinsic or what is externally pleasing. Now, this young man uses the word for an intrinsic goodness. Now, why is that important? Well, that word was used only to describe God. No rabbi in Jesus' day would allow someone to call him inherently Good. I mean, do you see what Jesus is doing in the text? I mean, he's asking the man, do you realize who I am? You can't call me good unless you call me God. And if you're calling me God, then, and if you're not calling me God, then why in the world would you call me good? You see, there are two issues when it comes to goodness. I mean, the first issue is how good is Jesus? I mean, Jesus asked the man, why do you call me good? Now, he's not denying his deity, as some liberal commentators have suggested. He's really asking this man to take a step of faith. He's asking, do you really see who I am? Chuck Colson, the founder and president of uh, Prison Fellowship, uh, tells a story of walking down the street one day and coming the other direction was a woman. He noticed that uh, she just looked him over from one end to the other. And he just kept walking. A little while later, he noticed the other, this woman again come back by and she's just looking him over as she passed. About ten minutes later, uh, he noticed her uh, kind of across the way just looking at him. And this time she approached. She said, I just can't get over it. Do you know who you look like? He said, no, ma'am, who do I look like? She said, you look just like Chuck Colson. Well, not wanting to call attention to himself, he said, you know, I've been told that. And he, he went on his way. Well, he was minding his own business. And about ten minutes later, he looked up and there she was across the way looking at him smiling and just shaking her head in amazement. She approached again one last time. She said, I just can't get over how much you look like Chuck Colson, but I came back to tell you, you're better looking than he is. <laughs> now, that's what's going on in the text. The young, rich man has said, do you know who you look like? And Jesus has said, yeah. Yeah, I've been told that before, but who do you think I am? You know, C.S. Lewis really understood the issue of goodness quite clearly. In fact, I'd love to read to you what he said in Mere Christianity in regard to this. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. Now listen to how he answers that. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make, a, make your choice. Either this man was and is God, or else a madman, or something worse. Then he continues, you can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a good moral teacher. He didn't leave that open to us. He didn't intend to. You see, you can't call Jesus a good moral teacher by claiming to be God. He's either a liar... Meaning, he, he knows he's not God, but he tells everybody he is. Or he's a lunatic, meaning he actually thinks he's God, but he's not. Or he is who he claimed to be, Lord and God. Those are the only three options we have. That's it. Now, this young man doesn't see Jesus as God, and what's worse... He sees himself as being good. Which brings us to the second problem of goodness, and that is, how good are we? I mean, the second thing Jesus picks up on in this man's question is his use of the word do. Remember, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, he thought there was something he could do that could earn himself heaven. Now, now, the man's question really reflects the Jewish perspective during Jesus' day that eternal life was something that could be gained by keeping the Old Testament law. I mean, we got people that think like that today. I mean, they think that, you know, at the end of your life, God's going to add up all the good things you do and add up all the bad things you do. And if the good things outweigh the bad things, then you gain entrance into heaven. In fact, I was talking to a man the other day at McDonald's. I mean, one thing led to another in our conversation, and I, I asked him, I said, you know, if you found yourself at the gates of heaven and Jesus asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And he immediately told me about all the good things he had started doing and all the bad things he had stopped doing. Now, that's this young man's perspective. But Jesus wants to expand his thinking on how good is good enough. Notice how he does it, verse 19. He says, you know the commandments, do not commit murder, I mean, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, uh, defraud. Honor your father and mother, and he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, Jesus quotes the, really the second part of the Ten Commandments. I mean, the first four commands of the Ten Commandments have to do with your relationship with God. The last six have to do with your relationship with others. And it's these last six that Jesus quotes here. Now, why? Why the last six? Well, I think the answer has to do with understanding the purpose of the Old Testament law. And in fact, Paul wrote his, his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, 
But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what is a lawful use of the law? Now, the law was not given to Israel so they could keep it and earn their way to heaven. So what is the purpose of the law? Well, chances are good this morning when you got up and got ready to come to church, you probably used one of these. Now, a mirror will show you what needs correcting, especially in the morning, and hopefully you did use one of these. It'll show you if you've got toothpaste on your chin. I mean, if your lipstick is on crooked or not, or if your hair is disheveled. I mean, a mirror shows you what's wrong. Now, the Old Testament law is like that. It shows you what's wrong. But a mirror can't wash your face. can't straighten your lipstick with a mirror, can you? You can't comb your hair. Now, the Old Testament law is like a mirror. It shows you exactly what's wrong and hopefully motivates you to action. But it's like a mirror in that it reveals. Now, this young man, he thinks he's good enough that he could obey the Old Testament law. Galatians 3.25, though, says that the law is our tutor bringing us to Christ. In other words, it, like a mirror, reveals what's wrong, but it also shows us our need for a Savior. Now, this young man says he has kept the law in its entirety. Really? I mean, do you think he kept all of it? I mean, maybe he hadn't slept around. Maybe he hadn't killed anybody. Maybe he hadn't stolen anything. But never embellished a story, never stretched the truth, never had an impure thought or an unclean motive? I mean, hardly. You wouldn't think that would be possible. Now, James, in the book that bears his name, reminds us that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of the entire law, of it all. I mean, this young man is not that good, no matter what he thinks of himself. Nobody could be that good, that is, except God. But this young man is blind. He can't see it. That's why Jesus quotes the Old Testament law to him. He wants this man to understand that he's not good enough to earn his way to heaven. You see, his problem he faces, the young man faces, is his problem with goodness. Yes, he's perceived his need. Yes, he's gone to the right person and asked the right question. But this man's problem is that... He doesn't see Jesus as good enough to be God. And what is worse, he sees himself as good enough to earn eternal life. He has an inaccurate view of Jesus, and he has a superficial view of himself. Now, you need to know Jesus loves this man dearly. In fact, he's going to say so in the next verse. And because he loves him, he wants this man to get an accurate picture of of his real condition. 
And how Jesus brings that about is quite interesting. Look at verse 21. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at the word, at this word and went his way sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You guys remember the movie um, City Slicker? I mean, you, you got Billy Crystal, who's playing the part of a uh, confused thirty-something uh, with a vague sense that life has just passed him by. And, and then you got Jack Palance, that leathery, wise cowboy with saddlebags for eyes. He tells Crystal, "Do, do you want to know the secret to life?" He holds up one finger. Remember, Crystal says, the "Secret to life is your finger." And Plant says, it's one thing. The secret to life is pursuing one thing. Well, somehow that resonates with Crystal, doesn't it? I mean, his life is scattered. I mean, he, he is torn between uh, his obligation to his family and success at work, between playing it safe and trying to find a life of adventure. I mean, his life is about many things, so it feels like it's... Not about anything. And so it makes sense to him. And he asks, so what's the one thing? Remember what Palance said? That's what you've got to figure out for yourself. Now, that's what the young man, that's exactly what's happening here in the story. I mean, Jesus has said, you need one thing. So it raises the question, what is the one thing Jesus is talking about? Well, uh, I mean, too many have assumed that the one thing is what follows. But a careful examination of the text reveals what follows is really three things. Notice, he, he says, you've got to go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, if that's the one thing, we're all in trouble. I mean, you have to conclude that that's the condition for heaven. I mean, so we have to go, we liquidate our possessions and give the cash away. I mean, has anybody in the room done that? Anybody, anybody. I mean, could you do that? Well, it would be next to impossible, wouldn't it? But do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's using the law lawfully as it was intended He's using it like a mirror to show this young man he's really not as good as he thinks he is. He's using it like a tutor in the hopes of opening this man's eyes to the question, how good is good enough? You see, this man has claimed that he can keep the law and has kept it. So all Jesus does is simply test him in one aspect of the law, one command, I mean, the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. What better way to love your neighbor than to liquidate your assets and give it all to him? And this young man realizes, I can't do that. He can't fulfill even one command of the law, much less the entire law. But that really begs the question, doesn't it, then, if... 
If that's not the one thing, what is the one thing Jesus is talking about? Well, uh, I think you have to look in context. And if you look back to the real introduction of this passage in verse 13, you'll notice that Jesus has just finished talking about entrance into the kingdom of God. And then he encourages the disciples to get the children and bring them around him. And as they're around him, verse 15, he says this, Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God is a child by no means, will by no means enter it. I mean, think about it logically. A child doesn't earn anything. I mean, everything he has is given to him. To accept the kingdom as a child means to have childlike faith. It means trusting God. Now get this, like a child trusts his parents that They will give him what he needs and has no hope of earning. That's childlike faith. So the young man ends up walking away. Why did he walk away? Well, he didn't get it. He didn't get the point. I mean, he's thinking in his head. That means, you see, I've got to give up my ancestral home. That means... Uh, see, I've I, I got to liquidate my assets. It means I've got to resign from that influential position in, in the synagogue. Instead of thinking, well, wait a minute, Jesus. Who could do that? That's impossible. And if he'd come to that conclusion, then the issue of how good is good enough would have been settled in his mind. Nobody is good enough. But this young man's unwilling to acknowledge that Jesus is God and he's unwilling to admit that he's not good enough. So he turns and he walks away. And amazingly, Jesus lets him go. And Jesus turns and now instructs his disciples by making two astonishing statements. I want you to look at them beginning in verse 23. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? That's his first statement. Notice the disciples' response. And the disciples were astonished at his words, so he makes a second statement. Uh, But Jesus answered again and said, children, how, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And notice the disciples' response. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, then, who who can be saved? Now, there are some Bible commentators who have tried to soften Jesus' statement by uh, telling us that uh, the eye of the needle was actually a, a gate adjacent to a larger gate, it was a smaller gate, adjacent to a larger gate in the wall of Jerusalem, that they would seal up at night uh, for safety's sake, and they would open up the eye of the needle, and a man could walk through, and he could actually get his camel through if the camel got down on its knees, and he used Vaseline on the sides. He could squeeze through. Now, the problem with that interpretation is... You can't find that anywhere historically. There was no smaller gate next to a larger gate in the wall of Jerusalem during Jesus' time. There's no such thing. 
I mean, what Jesus is describing here is really a proverbial saying of his day. He's talking about a literal needle and a literal camel, whether one hump or two. It doesn't matter. So the question is, how do you get this gigantic camel through the eye of this little needle? And the answer is you can't. Jesus is not describing something that's hard. He's he's describing something that is absolutely impossible. I mean, he's saying that just like it's impossible to get this camel through the eye of a needle, it's impossible for a rich man by his own efforts, trusting his own riches, to enter the kingdom of God. So if he's saying that, then why are the disciples so astonished at what he said? Well, you've got to remember that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were teaching. Uh, he who is rich, God, I mean, he who pleases God is rich. Uh, that riches was an indication of God's pleasure with a person, his favor with that person. And what Jesus just said about the camel and the eye of the needle fly in the face of all that contemporary thinking. So it's obvious the disciples would say, well, then who who could be saved? Notice how Jesus answers in the next verse, verse 27. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. I mean, do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying in order to enter the kingdom of God, well, you've got to declare bankruptcy. But you've got to be careful what kind of bankruptcy you declare. See, if your business is in trouble and creditors are calling 24-7 and you have no cash flow, you can file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which means you get freedom from your creditors while... You restructure and reorganize so that your business in the future will become profitable. In other words, you you get your creditors off your back and you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Or you can choose to declare Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which means, I mean, there's no amount of effort, money, material, Time you could put into the business that's going to change the course of that business. It's going downhill. So you decide to throw in the towel. You give up. You quit. You say, I can't do it. You you declare Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Now, the young man is willing to declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy. I'll just reorganize. I'll just do one more thing. I'll strap on a little more self-control, a little more discipline. I can do this. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And Jesus is looking at him going, no, 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 no. You've got to declare chapter 7. Throw in the towel. You give up. Admit, you can't do it. You can't. Now, if that's true, then the rich man comes to Christ exactly the same way as the poorest man on earth, doesn't he? 
I mean, think about it. Both have to acknowledge their complete and utter inability to earn heaven. And both have to trust Jesus to give them what they can't earn. Now, you need to know that while this dialogue is going on, uh, Peter's been listening. And he just blurts in something that just doesn't seem to fit. What's going on? Notice what he says in verse 28. And then Peter began to say to him, we have left all and followed you. In other words, Peter's saying, what about us? Now, you know why Jesus called them little children in verse 24. I mean, doesn't that sound like something a child would say? What about me? What about us? Sometime ago, I was talking to my stockbroker about my retirement account. And I had been tracking my mutual funds on the Internet, and I was becoming pretty dissatisfied with my rate of return. So I called him to find out if we could switch to other mutual funds to get a better rate of return. And that's when he informed me. He said, oh, Doug, Doug, you're calculating your investments all wrong. You see, when your mutual fund gives you a dividend, that dividend's reinvested by buying more stock in that fund. Over the years, the number of stocks you own has increased significantly. I said, oh, really? So what is my rate of return? He said, well, so far this year, it's about 19%. I couldn't believe it. I had almost pulled out of that fund in ignorance. Now I'm thinking about I need to invest more in that fund. Now, the way my stockbroker talk to me is exactly the way Jesus talks to Peter in the next verse. Verse 29, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, Peter, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's sake, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, Peter's saying, we've given up everything to follow you. He's saying, what's my rate of return, isn't he? And Jesus is saying, for those who are Christ's followers, who follow me like a disciple, I want you to know your rate of return is 10,000%. I mean, that's what a hundredfold means. I mean, I was pleased with a 19% rate of return. Jesus guarantees a 10,000% yield for those who seriously follow him as a disciple. Now, if I came to you with a literal investment, I mean, it, it was true, that earned 10,000% and asked you if you'd like to invest, I mean, would you? I mean, if you knew it was a legitimate investment, you'd be a fool not to. In fact, chances are good you would begin liquidating assets so that you could invest in this investment. I mean, only a fool would say, no, no, I'm going to keep my money in a passbook savings account. I mean, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying when you get discouraged that things aren't going the way you think they ought in life, or when you feel like it's not worth the hours you've invested in this relationship with this neighbor or this colleague, or you feel like... You know, two hours to volunteer back in East Station is just too much on a Sunday morning. And I'm thinking about, you know, pulling out. Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't. In fact, you, you should consider investing more. 
I mean, your rate of return is 10,000 percent. In other words, it's the promise of eternal rewards is what he's talking to Peter about. So when you look around and you see others not investing as much as you, don't get discouraged. Uh, Instead, remember that your volunteering, your giving, your engagement is yielding 10,000%. And then secondly, don't forget what Jesus says in the last verse of this passage. Verse 31, he says, But as many who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You know, this is really the story of two people who can't see clearly, isn't it? You've got this rich young ruler who can't see that Jesus is God, and sadly, he thinks he's good enough to earn heaven. And then you've got Peter who can't see the value of his investment. I wonder which one you're more like. Are you like the rich young ruler? You feel like I could do one more thing, one more thing to ensure I go to heaven or ensure God's pleased with me instead of like a child accepting God's gift and pleasure in your life? Or are you more like Peter? You've lost track of your investments. And now that you know, you're thinking, I want to invest more. Father, Thank you for this confusing passage that you've placed it here to challenge our thinking. I mean, for all of us in the room, I mean, that our involvement in people's lives and in volunteering and working with you in the kingdom yields an unbelievable uh, result, 10,000%. Father, we we would love to invest more, not, not just because of what it yields to us, but because we get to partner with you. And in doing so, we get to engage in an even more deeper relationship with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for coming. Uh, If this is your first time at Horizon, let me encourage you to drop by the hearth room, third door on the left. We'd love to put a face with a name. And if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are outside. And you might want to pick up one of our Honest to God booklets and take that home with you if you haven't already. See you next week.